House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, we've got Joanne Myers, and we'll be talking about her books, and one of them, Murder Most Foul. Uh, Joanne, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for uh, inviting me. Uh, so uh, let's let's introduce you to the uh, to the uh, audience. So exactly, um, where did you start writing, and and how and what kind of books are you writing? Well, I started writing as a child. I'm originally from Ohio, a small town in Ohio. I started writing as a child, and uh, I just stayed with it. Um, as I said earlier, I was. Um, raised by a mother who did not approve of any type of art, so she never gave me any encouragement to do anything artistic. So I put that on the back burner and got to it later in life. But I, I write all different types of genres. I write a mystery. I write a science fiction, um, fantasy, uh, supernatural, uh, true crime, and poetry. Well, pretty amazing. So um, when you got into writing... Um True crime. I noticed uh, one of your books too called Twisted Love, and it's twelve true true, yes. true stories. Um, what brought you to that that sort of subject in that that book? Well, um, I've always been fascinated by uh, why people murder. You know, why go that far? I mean, that's probably like the worst crime that you could ever do against anybody. And I just uh, was always fascinated about how the mind of a serial killer works. And uh, and I, it just fascinated me. I mean, tr true crime is what somebody actually went through. I mean, they experienced it. And uh, true experiences is, uh, you know, the worst, uh, the worst type of experience that you can go through. And uh, it just fascinated me. Pretty incredible. Now, now your newest book is called what? Crime of the Century. That's the newest one you've just put out. Yeah, the Crime of the Century. It's a uh, true story. It was from a 1982 uh, double homicide from uh, a small town that I was living in called Logan, Ohio. And it took, uh, well, they convicted the wrong man. They convicted a man that did not commit the crimes. He was a pervert, but he didn't actually commit the crimes. And he went to prison anyway. He was sentenced to death row. He was on death row for five years before he was um, exonerated. And then... Uh, in 2009, I believe, is when uh, DNA uh, was used to test some of the evidence that was found at the crime scene, and it came back to matching two local men, who I uh, I knew those men from living in that town. And uh, so altogether, it took almost 30 years to find the real killers of those two teenagers. Wow. Um, so he, yeah. he wasn't a very good man, you're saying. He was a pervert, so he was kind of a bad person already? Right. He he was a stepfather, and he wasn't a good person. He had been molesting the girl. He had threatened all her boyfriends and things like that. I mean, he intimidated a lot of people, and um, the community hated him, hated his wife because she knew about uh, the molestation, and she put up with it and didn't stop it, and, and uh, their entire lives were ruined by the arrest. They, they lost everything, their property. Uh, when he was convicted, the wife divorced him. And uh, they moved to separate states. And uh, so he had a hard life and everything like that. But, you know, again, I don't know. He wasn't a good person. So I'm not really sure what to say about that. Hi, Joanne. It's Julie. 
Um, uh-huh. if, if I may, may just take you back a couple of steps in, in terms of your own um, experiences. Okay. You, des- you described this kind of crazy flair. I've, I've had a, a look at your, your webpage, and you certainly have, have an extensive um, uh, resume, if you might, might like to call it, of different things that you do. And yes. um, you, you've described being very creative from a very young age mm-hmm. and having, having parents that really were quite opposing of this. They didn't understand the need for it and, and, and therefore weren't, weren't helpful. But right. there must have been somebody that supported you or, or continued that drive within you to help you achieve what you, you have done today. So who was, who was that person that you looked up to? Um, well, I can't say uh, I looked up at anybody. I, I didn't have a role model. I never had a role model. I, it was just something that I wanted to do. It was always just me, something that I needed to do to be happy. And writing is really the only thing that keeps my interest. I can't really do anything but besides write. I, I work outside the home and all that, but I can't think of anybody that, uh, you know, gave me encouragement or anything like that. Was there anybody that you would look up to, though, because you're, it's not just writing, you've been, you've drawn, you've been um, in some acting roles, so the creativity is quite vast. So is there somebody that you would have looked up to as a youngster, somebody that you would want to be like? No, I think it was just uh, fascinated with uh, different things, uh, how people paint. You know, I love art. I love uh, all the old painters, you know, and uh, Van Gogh and um, um, Monet and all them. And uh, the actresses, the, uh, the acting, I've always uh, been interested. I, I love watching TV. I love movies. And I love putting, uh, you know, life into uh, a fictitious uh, character. And I just always thought it would be great, to, you know, to be up on the silver screen and doing things like that. And as a child, I I performed in school plays, things like that. One of the things on your website that was that intrigued me is, um, and, and forgive me because this is not critical. It's it's it's, it's trying to understand. Uh huh. Um, you take inspiration when you have writer's block. You you tell people to take inspiration from true life experiences um, that may be depicted in television programs. And yes. uh, the, re- the reason that I was interested in that is because I, I generally tend to do a lot of the paranormal interviews on, on mm-hmm. House Mystery. And, um, and, and that, that was interesting to me, that you've, you, you talked about some of them being true life. And when we talk about some of them being true life, it means that we're, we're saying others aren't. So it, it is, uh, how do you choose what ones to write about when the inspiration is actually not from your own investigation, but from the investigation of others? Yes, it's from the investigation of others. I, you know, you meet people going through life, you work with people, you go to school with people, and, uh, you know, they do things, they tell you things, and I just take bits and pieces of what I've seen and heard over the years and just uh, turn it into a story somehow. So... But would you? But other than true stories, or some of them are true. Yes, some of them are true stories. Things that happened to my friends, or uh, you know, uh, my school classmates, or something like that. And I take those true stories and I I add to it. So a lot of them are, are based on uh, you know people that I've met over the years. Okay, so there'll be components that that, that are true, but you embellish them for the for the storyline. Yeah, a lot of times I do. Yes. 
And have you have you thought about doing? Um, I mean, with your interest in the fantasy and uh, of ghosts and spirits, have, the world of the paranormal, have you thought about doing interviews with people and recording first-hand accounts and telling them as they recall the? Because one of the things that I've found along over many years of, of investigating the paranormal is this false sense of you know we we depict other people's accounts but we don't test it out and yeah. we we only actually go to investigate somebody else's memory of something we 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 don't walk into a room and suddenly say oh yes this is, this is a brand new property no history nothing and we're going to investigate here today um no there's been no reported activity but we're just going to do it for the sake of it and i'm sure we'll find something we don't do that we hear an account and then we go and we revisit and we investigate somebody else's experience and memory so have you thought about doing anything along that line where you don't have to embellish it because you're looking at something more factual oh uh, no i haven't done that i've tried to interview people with my uh true crime book uh, the crime of the century and all i got was a bunch of uh, closed doors and everything nobody wanted to talk about it nobody wanted to be interviewed and things like that so um that was a big disappointment nobody just wanted to get involved with it i don't know if it's because it came from a small town or because it's such a heinous crime, I don't know. But uh, I usually get turned away. If I try to contact people, I usually just get turned away. And did, so did you have the same experience with Murder Most Foul? Murder Most Foul? Uh, no, uh, Murder Most Foul is a fictitious uh, book based on uh, that true crime and everything. And, okay. uh, yes, yeah. so it's, it's a, a mystery. It's a detective uh, crime novel is what that is. So you found it easier to to write because you didn't have to um, go and approach people for for actual facts. So you could just base it on a true crime and and right. That's how I, I thought, yes. That's how I wrote um, Murder Most Foul. The other ones um, uh, I researched and things like that to find out the the facts about them. But uh, uh, it's not easy trying to locate people. Um, I've never had luck, luck in it. I've called around and tried to get photographs from uh, new pa newspaper clippings and things like that, and I couldn't get anything. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. So um, I just uh, had to do things my way to get anything done. So in the um, in this in this Crime of the Century book, what was the murder like? What, maybe explain the scenario of what happened. Um. Well. Um, Two teenagers came up missing. They were 18, 19-year-old teenagers, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, came up missing, and uh, the boy's father reported them missing to the police department. And uh, they didn't really take a uh, serious account of it. You know, they figured they just, you know, ran away or whatever. And uh, and then about 14 days later, um, while they were doing a search, uh, they found uh, torsos. They found two chopped-up torsos floating in the river. And then that's when they cordoned the entire cornfield off and uh, started doing a search. And uh, within four days, they found uh, the body parts and things like that. And they were arranged in a circular uh, pattern to indicate satanic worship of some kind. And uh, there's a lot of uh, rumors and uh, things like that in those counties that uh, I was living at that had a lot to do with... Uh, Devil worshippers and things like that, uh, the Hell's Angels, motorcycle gang, they were living up there at one time in that county. And uh, they were rumored to have something to do with it. And uh, it was uh, 
turned out to be that the two killers, when they finally actually caught the real people, they uh, it was their ideal to uh, cut the bodies up and make it look like uh, devil worshippers did it, to throw the throw suspicion off of them is what it is. So do you have so they, research yes. that you have to do to understand satanic rituals, devil worship, gangs? Oh, I did. I uh, watched documentaries. I went to the library and looked it up in uh, different books and things like that. Hmm. So now you said that they, at first they arrested the wrong guy and convicted him and stuff. How did the town right. feel at the time that this was all going on? Were they really scared of satanic sort of thing going on, or, or did they believe it, or... What was well, yes, some of them believed it. Well, when it first happened, after the torsos were found, they uh, uh, closed the schools down and uh, wouldn't let anybody go back to school for a couple of weeks. They figured they would have it solved by then, but they didn't, and they finally realized that you can't keep kids out of school, you know, because they may never solve this double homicide. So they let the kids go back to school, but it was un, uh, under a supervised uh, 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 supervised uh, ratings, uh Volunteer parents came out, and they uh, uh, walked kids to school. There was parents on all the uh, corners uh, watching the children. They had a lot of extra police on duty. And uh, right after school let out, everybody was, uh, you know, expected to go home right then and there. You couldn't linger around. Uh, they uh, wouldn't let Halloween go on that year, and they didn't let Halloween go on in that year for four or five years, in that town for four or five years, because they were afraid that, you know, something like that would happen again. But, um, you know, it was just a public hysteria is what it basically is. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so everybody, a lot of people were scared. And, uh, you know, because the killers were still out there. And uh, they weren't sure if the killer was, you know, a local person or a, a somebody that was just passing through, a drifter or something. So, uh, but they took precautions as best that they thought they could back in, you know, the 80s and stuff. And, uh, they had a lot of uh, extra people watching out for children, and uh, they started, uh, you know, neighborhood watches and things like that. Anything suspicious, they would report it and stuff like that. You know, anybody that came into town that was a stranger driving through, they would always be stopped. The cars would be checked, things like that. So there was a lot of hysteria. Why did they um, arrest the guy that they did and and follow through with him? What is it that they had for evidence or... Uh, to convict him? Uh, well, uh, that was the stepfather, the girl's stepfather. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had been telling people at school, classmates and teachers, that he had been molesting her since she was about 11. And uh, they figured, and at the time, police figured, well, you know, if he's molesting her, he, he must have killed her too. And, uh, you know, ex-boyfriends of the girl, uh, they came forward and said that uh, the stepfather had threatened them, threatened to castrate them if they were having sex with the girl. And uh, he would, uh, the boys, when they would pick the girl up at the, their trailer and stuff, they would go inside and the grand, uh, the stepfather would be in there cleaning his guns right in front of, uh, you know, the boy and stuff like that. And uh, the man just intimidated everybody that the, the girl uh, went out with. And he would gra he grabbed a hold of a couple of them and shook them up real good and things like that. So he was just basically a bully. Yeah, but did they actually have any evidence or what 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 was it was just because of who he was is that why they were suspicious then uh, yes it was all it was a case of circumstantial evidence and um, there was no uh, evidence of uh, his uh, his uh, dna being found at the uh, at the cornfield but this was back in 82 they didn't really really use dna then and uh, 
they couldn't really do anything uh, for the uh, the blood either, the blood types and things like that. But it was just basically basically uh, circumstantial evidence. And witnesses came forward and said, yes, I saw him, uh, you know, threaten the two teenagers and force them into, you know, a car that matches this man's car. Well, that turned out to be uh, uh, not true, but uh, the man swore by his statement, and he got $8,000 reward out of it. And it turned out uh, not to even, uh, you know, be him. It was just somebody else that might have looked like the stepfather or looked like the two teenagers, but it uh, there was no connection. But the man got the $8,000 out of it, and he testified in court under oath that, yes, he saw the stepfather force those two teenagers into the car by gunpoint and drive off. So mm-hmm. people testified against him. He was caught in lies. He said he had never left his property on um, the day of the murders, and that turned out to be a lie because he was at a gas station paying for gasoline with a check, and the date was on the check. So uh, police, you know, caught him in, you know, lies, things like that. But there was no uh, physical evidence, uh, DNA or anything like that, found at the crime scene that belonged to the stepfather. It was just basic his lies and uh, uh, his uh, attitude toward the case. He didn't have a good attitude. Uh, he wanted he wanted to uh, go and help with the search party when they first had the initial search party, and the police said, "Well, do you really want to do that since they've been missing for you know several days?" And he said, "Yes, uh, seeing dead people don't bother me because I used to drive a hearse for a funeral home, and seeing pe- and dead people don't bother me, and that's not really something you should say if you got a missing teenager." And it was just uh, he told people he was psychic, you know, who's going to believe that? And that turned out not to be true. And uh, they did bring psychics in. They brought at least two psychics in uh, to, uh, you know, testify in court and things like that. And everybody was just against the stepfather. His strange behavior is what made the police focus on him. His attitude, his his uh, words, his uh, behavior is what focused the police on him. So, so after he was convicted in that, what, what led them to decide to search for DNA years later and uh, who, who was behind that? Like, why did it happen? Uh, I'm not sure who was behind it. Uh, let me see. Her name was Judy. She had been interviewed um, not long after the crimes took place, but uh, she had forgotten about uh, her, her. It was her husband. It was her husband, uh, Kenny, that uh, helped kill the, ki- t- uh, the the teenagers. It was Kenny and his friend Chester. And uh, Judy kind of knew that. She wasn't told that, but her husband went home that evening with a big slash down his arm where he had uh, been severely sliced with a, a knife. And uh, she just put two and two together. The friend left town right away. And it was years later when she was, uh, she had always been in trouble with the law for drugs and things like that. And uh, she was on probation again. So she goes and reports to her probation officer uh, one week, and uh, this was a probation officer that uh, was in the habit of asking people uh, about this case because he was still uh, interested in solving the case. And he just happened to ask her that day, uh, do you know anything about this crime? And that's when she said, oh, yeah, I remember. That was my uh, my husband's uh, friend, Chester. He had something to do with it. That's what I always thought. I mean, she wasn't sure. She wasn't there when the murder took place, but her husband and his friend Chester are the ones that she always suspected, and she just kept her mouth shut for you know her own personal reasons. 
and uh, that's basically uh, how it, uh, they started um, investigating Chester. And when they tracked him down, he was in a out-of-state prison for uh, raping young girls. He had had a uh, sex problem in his entire life. And uh, according to police, when they went and uh, talked to him about the, the murders, he said, uh, what took you so long? It's like he had been waiting all those years for them to arrest him on this charge. He admitted to it right up front. So I don't think they, uh, he didn't even have to go to court. He just took a plea bargain. I think he got an extra 25 years out of it or something. He's still in prison. He'll probably die there. Hmm. And uh, that's basically uh, how it uh, got started. Judy uh, is the one that uh, finally uh, broke down and remembered things. And uh, that's when they started testing the, the DNA at the cornfield that they had found, and it uh, matched her husband's DNA from where he had sliced his arm and stuff. And that happened when uh, they were chopping up the bodies because uh, Kenny did not know how to do that. And uh, Lester, he was a big hunter. He knew how to uh, slice body parts off and things like that, skin deer and stuff. And uh, so that's why one of the bodies uh, was all uh, chopped up and sloppy, and the other body was, uh, was well uh, sliced up you know, like a surgeon would do. And uh, so that, that's how they knew there was more than one person involved. But uh, a devil worshiper was uh, brought into the case, and he said uh, he believed it was uh, an entire coven of witches that did it. But it turned out to be two men. And Kenny uh, accidentally uh, sliced his arm while he was uh, chopping up one of the bodies. You know, he blamed everything on Chester, you know. Chester took out this gun, and I saw him shoot these two kids, and I was afraid he's going to shoot me, so I did what he told me to do to keep from dying. You know, they blended on each other is basically what happened. Oh, so yes. nobody really knows but them, you know, whose ideal was it. But um, uh, uh, Kenny always said it was Chester that had the gun, that he was after sex from uh, the girl at that, at that time. And uh, the, the girl's boyfriend got in the middle of it, and Chester whipped out a gun and shot him twice and got him out of the way. And then he started shooting at the girl because she started screaming and freaking out. So uh, that that's how that happened. So now what happened? So the guy that got convicted and was on death row and then now they found out he didn't do it. Uh, what's happened to him since then? Do we know where he's at now and, and how he lived after? Uh, well, he remarried. Uh, he did sue. He got an undisclosed amount of money for wrongful imprisonment. I do believe he passed away a couple of years ago, though. He was in his 80s. I believe I read that somewhere. And uh, he had tried for several years to get out of prison and stuff, but uh, um, the, the Ohio um, uh, senator would not allow it. The governor, he would not allow it. And uh, the appeals were always turned down. But his attorneys never gave up on him. The attorneys always fought for him and stuff. And eventually he was released. And... Uh, he was uh, completely exonerated from the crimes, and uh, I gave him the right to sue for money, which he did and received. And him and his uh, new wife were living in uh, Grove City, Ohio, at the time. But I believe he's uh, died since then. Hmm. What, what, what is the thing you hope people get out of this book after they've read it? Uh, to, be, to know who you're associating with. To know your surroundings, you know, know who you're associating with. Uh, don't trust anybody that you think is a friend. 
these kids thought the, uh, thought these two men were friends because they had bought uh, marijuana from them before, and they thought they could be trusted, and uh, well, they couldn't be. And uh, so just, uh, you know, bad people are everywhere is what this book is about. Bad people are everywhere, and you need to know uh, your surroundings, and you need to be smart when you're out in public or around people because you never know what's going to happen. So what are you planning on? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry Al. How, how do people do that, Joanne? How do you, because... What was that, dear? How, how, did the, how do you do that? How do you know about your surroundings? Because perpetrators are very skilled at hiding what they do, which is yes. why they go under the radar and they don't get arrested. So yes. I mean, that's, it's, it's just such a big statement to say, don't trust anyone you think is a friend, isn't it? That's really hard. Yes, it is, but uh, these uh, these two teenagers, you know, barely knew these men. I mean, they weren't uh, anybody around a lot and stuff. They just bought marijuana from them from time to time. But uh, so I don't really know what to say to that, but uh, I always tell people, you know, be on your guard. You know, know what's going on around you. If you see or hear something you don't like, get out of there. You know, that's what I tell people. And uh, I'm very leery of people. You know, I don't get in the car with, cars with anybody. I don't take rides from anybody. And uh, you do have to be careful because, you know, uh, serial killers are, uh, you know, clever people. Absolutely. Uh, so and, and it's, but it's about being proportionate, isn't it? Not everybody's a serial killer. Not everybody's going to come right. on. So is that very fine balance that's needed? Yes. So, so you know, the, the, the message for, for, you know, for, for yourself, to, from, for other people, to, from reading your book, surely can't be just don't trust anybody it's it, it has to be proportionate yes it does have to be proportionate you should know the person you know more than just a few times and things like that you should go with your gut feeling most people know what their gut feeling whether or not uh, they're in a situation they need to get out of but uh I, you know i don't really know what to say to that you know it is hard to to you know people anybody can be fooled anybody can be tricked so you just, I don't know what to say to that. You just have to be extremely careful uh, about who you hang out with and things like that and what you do. You know, they were into drugs and things like that. So, you know, that's never a good situation. You no, know, of course not. And, and, it, and it certainly sets the scene, doesn't it? And they're obviously very vulnerable. But from, yeah. from, from your own experiences, uh, you, you've just said that you wouldn't trust anybody. Now you're much more cautious and you, you don't take lifts with unknown people, etc., which is wise. That's, that's totally uh, what we would advise people, isn't it? But with, where did that come from? For you? Was it about your research and understanding and knowledge of this case or was it before then? Were you already quite a guarded person? No, I was always a guarded person, yes. I've always, uh, I always read the paper a lot. You know, you hear about crimes in the paper all the time. You see it on the news all the time. And, uh, you know, people getting killed by their so-called friends. You know, I mean, you can get killed by your husband or your boyfriend, you know. I mean, you, you don't really know anybody, I don't think. You don't really know anybody. But I've always been a cautious person. And did, how did you, um, I'm sorry, because I'm delving into this, and you have to tell me to be quiet, Joanne, if you don't want to answer, please. You know, That's please. okay. But, you, but, but you've, you've had a family, you've had relationships, and yes. so how did, you, how did you ensure that that relationship was, you felt safe within the relationship being so guarded yourself? Well, I didn't move in with the person right away. I mean, I didn't live with most of them that I dated. 
And I usually met him at different places. I didn't always invite him over to the house. You know, I, I meet him somewhere out in public. And I would get to know them before that, you know, anything uh, serious started happening. Um, was this, was there a, a trigger event in a, in a relationship that you have had personally that's led you to be less trusting or to have your trust kind of um, that your, your, your worry about trust um, and people's true personas to be ratified? Uh, well, I was married once at a young age and uh, that was a big disappointment. So I, I might have triggered, uh, you know, uh, my relationships with men <coughs> about them being careful about who I choose to date and things like that. Mm. It's just it's interesting, isn't it, because so many authors that we, we speak to uh, have um, storylines or their interests informed by their younger years. Um, yes. And, and, of course, we're, that's, that's we develop into adults based on those younger years, uh, don't we? So it's, it's you know, understandable. Yes. So, so for you going forward, what, what, what is it now you want to do next? Uh, well, I'm turning some of my short stories into screenplays. I like to see them, uh, you know, turned into movies. That's, that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, yeah, I, re I read about that on your website. That's interesting. Tell, tell us more about that. Well, I'm entering contests and things like that, so I'm hoping they go somewhere. I belong to a couple of uh, um, uh, screenwriting. Uh, I belong to a screenwriting organization here in Dallas area, and the women in film Dallas, it's uh, for screenwriters and people in the movie business, things like that. We get together once a month and uh, talk about things. So I'm hoping to meet good contacts from those uh, organizations. And your short stories, what are, what are they based on? Are they all very different or are they similar themes? Well, right now I'm working on the ones that are paranormal and the fantasy, fantasy ones. Okay. And uh, do you have any particular paranormal stories that you... you really are interested in or you really believe in? Uh, well, I'm writing, uh, the one I wrote was called Blood Ties. It's based on a true story of uh, these identical twin uh, girls and the one turns up missing. And when she goes missing, her other uh, twin starts having uh, visions, uh, you know, bad things that happen to the twin. And because of these visions, uh, she, at the end, solves her sister's uh, kidnapping and murder. So there's a lot of twists and turns to that. She disguises herself to look like her twin, uh, to go out to, to meet her twin's uh, friends and everything because the twin is separated from her husband. She's turning kind of wild and uh, doing things that she really shouldn't be doing, going to places she shouldn't be going. So uh, the twin disguises herself as the missing twin and uh, gets involved with, uh, you know, the seedy side of life, things like that. And there's things that... Uh, you know, it puts her in danger, but she's still willing to do that to find out what happened to her missing twin. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, how about, uh, let's give the listeners your, you have a website, so tell them what the, what the website is, so if they want to come look you up or see some of your work. Okay, it's uh, www.booksandpaintingsbyjoanne.com. Fantastic. And, of course, we'll have your book on our website as well, so people listening can just do one click and pick up the book and, and go to your website. Again, our guest has been author uh, Joanne Myers. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. You have a great evening now. 
To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.